Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is on a really important topic and something on this has perhaps been overdue from us. That's on the bushfires in Australia that were absolutely catastrophic this year. And as we speak are still going on in some parts of the country. Though we hope of course that the worst is over. It's still summer in Australia though and that means that fire season is expected to continue through till March. In fact as I'm recording this I'm reading some news about a warning being issued for an area near Canberra. So this is a subject that we've dealt with a little bit through explainer videos and the like. But the purpose of this episode is actually to get some expert perspective from Australia to speak about what these fires mean and you know more importantly what patterns we can read here what are the underlying causes with changes in climate and does this now portend a rather more worrying and alarming era in which cataclysmic events like this can be repeated again and again last week i had the pleasure of speaking to someone in australia who knows more than most about bushfires and how to deal with them That's Ken Thompson who is the former deputy chief commissioner of New South Wales Fire and Rescue. Mr Thompson was one of a group of retired fire chiefs who had warned the federal government in Australia last year about the lack of preparation in dealing with fires. Unfortunately, as we know now, that was to no avail. So we're really happy to have him be on this podcast and to give us some perspective and hear some of our conversation. Mr Thompson let me first start by conveying the condolences and sympathies of all my team here at the Hindu for what's been going on in Australia these past few months so i wanted to start by asking you a somewhat basic question so bushfires are a normal part of life a normal occurrence every year in australia what has made the scale of them so severe these past few months yeah that's um That's a simple question with a complicated answer. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Our fire season, we we do have a lot of bushfires in Australia. We have a fire season that typically runs from uh, October each year and through until March the following year, particularly on the east coast. What we've been noticing though over the past um, probably five to ten years is that that bushfire season is becoming longer. It's about twenty percent longer than it used to be, particularly at the beginning of the the fire season. It hasn't been unusual in the past for the fire season to be brought forward from October to September, but over the last two years it's been brought forward to August. And during August two years ago, uh, we had the first ever total fire ban across a large part of uh, the east coast of New South Wales. And on that day, they had more than eighty out of control fires burning across New South Wales alone. So. the indication there is that you know something quite significant is happening and quite something quite significant is changing uh people like me uh firefighters with a lot of experience and people who've studied climate science and climate change we're absolutely convinced that uh, human induced climate change is creating fire seasons and fire conditions that are, are far worse than they've ever been before I think one of the things that people find hard to comprehend here is the is the fact that there were these fires that were so vast in scale that they went on for months without uh, being able to put out. 
what's the best way to explain that? Uh, is that is that is it that once these files are put out, they can recur again? Well, there's a lot of things. That's why I said before it's a it's a simple question, but it's a complicated answer. Um, some of the some of these fires are just enormous in terms of their scale. Some fires are uh, around about half a million hectares in size. Uh, we've had twelve point five million hectares burnt, which uh, that, that's around. 30 million acres of, of bushland that, that have been burnt. Uh, 32 people have died so far. Thousands of homes have, have been destroyed. Uh, the fires, uh, it's a bit hard to get an idea of the scale of Australia, but the fires have been burning simultaneously from the southeastern part of Queensland, which is one of our northern states, right through New South Wales, which is kind of in the middle, right through Victoria, which is in the south, South Australia, which is in the south, and Tasmania, which is in the south, but at the same time, and that's a distance of probably uh, about 3,000 kilometres, and we've also had at the same time fires burning on the west coast, which is about 6,000 kilometres away, Um, and we've had fires burning in the middle of what we call the Nullarbor Plain, which is effectively a desert area. Um, So we've had pretty well all of Australia particularly on the, on, the co- on the coastal areas and in the centre, burning at the one time. And we've never experienced this before. Right. Our, our fire season typically starts in the northern part of the country, around the southeast uh, Queensland uh, area. And then it, over that period I mentioned before, that October to March, the fires will generally travel. It's not the same fire, obviously, but the fires tend to spread from north to south. Um, over that period, October to March. What we've had this time is fires burning along in, in that entire area over that period of time. We've, we've never experienced anything like this before. What's interesting is that you were part of a group of former fire chiefs who tried to warn the Australian government that something like this was afoot, that something like this may happen. You obviously have a lot of experience seeing this on the ground. So what were the warning signs that you were seeing? What made you warn the government? Okay, well, um, I've been studying climate change and climate science for about 20, 25 years when I first became aware of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And some of my colleagues have been doing similar things, maybe not for quite as long as that. But we're all very acutely aware of the research and we're all acutely aware of the projections that have been made, not only by the IPCC, but by Australia's own scientific organisations, such as our um, CSIRO and our Bureau of Meteorology, and an independent report that was commissioned by the government back in 2008. Uh, And all those reports have said the same thing. They've all said that unless uh, we as a a country and as a a world um, reduce our emissions very significantly, then we are going to see catastrophic events just like this one. And bushfire in Australia was one of the events that was identified as as being um, one of those events that was going to become more extreme um, the, the, the higher the uh, concentration of atmospheric CO2 became and um, as, and the higher the temperatures became as well. Now, we're at about around about 1, one degree, 1.1 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average. And that was identified as you know, a, a kind of a, a trigger, if you like, for the types of fires that we've been we've been seeing at the moment. One of the reports called the Garno Report, which was released in 2008, actually um, said that um, 
it nominated the year within which, by which these types of more extreme fires would become clearly evident. And that fire was 2000, that year was 2020. Right. So they don't become much more accurate than that. So, you know, we've got all that research behind us and all those projections behind us. And then we've got our practical experience having fought fires over, you know, quite a long period of time. There were 23 of us part of that, that are part of that group. And between us, we had more than 600 years of firefighting experience. So, you know, we've, we've got a lot of insight and a lot of experience. And we could see that the temperatures were getting higher, the rainfall was getting lower, the humidity was getting lower, and that plays, that, that plays a very important part in, in, in fire behaviour. Uh, the winds were getting stronger and drier, and, and the rainfall was just getting less and less. Now, you know, it was, we were just able to put the whole lot together, and we, we could see that we were coming into a particularly bad year. The first part of this year had been unusually dry as well and unusually hot. And we felt that we had an obligation to to raise these issues with the Prime Minister. Now, you might say, well, what about the fire chiefs who are currently in those, those roles? And I know that they've tried to raise these issues as well. But we felt that being former commissioners and deputy commissioners and very senior land managers that we were able to speak to politicians without the political constraints. Now, climate change over here is a very difficult issue to speak to politicians about, particularly those on the right side of politics. Um, there's been a lot of denial, uh, a lot of deflection, a lot of you know false attribution, a lot of blame where blame doesn't belong. And we felt it's going to be very difficult for these current fire commissioners to talk to politicians about these issues within that framework. And we thought we felt that because we're not constrained in that way anymore, we could speak very openly and very frankly with, with our Prime Minister. But unfortunately, uh, he refused to meet with us. Um, we wrote to him in March last year, expressing our concerns, and we identified a range of issues we wanted to talk to him about. The response we got was was barely barely even um, addressed any of the issues that were raised in our in our letter. So then we wrote again, I think in September, and basically it was, no, I don't need to meet with you, you know. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was very frustrating, actually, because we knew we had a lot to contribute and we knew that there were certain things that, you know, could be done that would not have prevented the fires, but perhaps would have made it easier to contain them or easier to fight them. We would have been, they would have been able to bring more resources to bear. But unfortunately, the Prime Minister just refused point blank to meet with us. Yes, so speaking speaking about preventive measures that can be taken, obviously at one level here we are speaking from a standpoint where it's already too late because the catastrophe that was seen over the past few months is the worst that uh, the continent's ever seen. But what are some of the preventive measures that can be taken? Well, this is where we have to go back to the science. You know, the science has been telling us for 30 years, not just Australia but the world, that we, re we need to reduce our emissions. Now, we've had various protocols, you know, Kyoto Protocol, we've got the Paris Agreement at the moment, but um, a lot of countries just aren't, um, they're either not taking those, those commitments seriously or they're not achieving whatever target it is that they, they agreed to reach. Now, Australia, unfortunately, has a very, very low target. Our target for emissions is a 26 to 28% reduction by 2030 on the emissions that we were releasing in 2005, which is very low to start with. Other countries are up around 40, 45%. What makes it even more, um, uh, less effective in Australia 
is that our government is choosing to use some carryover credits from the Kyoto Protocol. Now, when those carryover credits are applied, it reduces the emissions down to about 14 to 15%, which is absolutely, you know, it's, it's an abysmal figure and it's, it's, it's totally insignificant. So, you know, our reduction, our attempts at reduction, which is the first step in prevention, are woefully inadequate. So the first thing is to reduce the emissions. We're not very good at doing that. And our government has told, has indicated time and time and time again, even throughout these bushfires, that they have no intention of, of raising those targets, which is very frustrating. Now, other things that can be done is uh, uh, include what we call hazard reduction, and that's reducing the amount of fuel on the ground before a fire starts. Now, hazard reduction is, think of it as a toolkit, and it's got quite a few things in that toolkit. One of the tools in that kit is a, a, um, a technique called controlled burning, where firefighting agencies and land management agencies uh, go into these high-risk areas and reduce the amount of fuel on the ground by actually lighting low-intensity fires. Now, that can only be done certain times of the year. It can really only be done in the winter. Uh, we can't do it during the fire seasons because it's too dangerous. And as I said, our fire seasons are getting longer. And that means that the window of opportunity for doing those uh, controlled burns is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So where we used to have maybe four to six months to do uh, those kinds of controlled burns, we're now down to a couple of months. And if the weather conditions aren't right during, that, that during those periods, we can't do them at all. And that's what we're finding. Our fire seasons are getting longer and the window is getting smaller and the number of days available to us to do those controlled burns is, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. That's allowing fuel to build up on the ground, which is helping to create the kinds of conditions we're seeing now. So you've got to look at it as, as like a whole system. It's not just any one thing, but um, the, the whole climate change issue is the driving force behind a lot of the things that are happening at the moment. So just a quick clarification there. Um, I think there's still some confusion and also I think some disinformation about some of these fires maybe being man-made. But what can we identify as the most direct cause of these fires? The most direct cause uh, for these fires at the moment appears to be um, dry lightning strikes. Now, dry lightning strikes happen when you've got thunderstorm activity but no rain. So you get a lot of the, you know, the, all the characteristics of the thunderstorm, including the lightning, but without the rain. So the lightning strikes the ground, as I explained before, the there's a lot of fuel on the ground. That fuel is particularly dry. And those dry lightning strikes um, uh, will, will ignite fires. Now, again, going back to the science, one of the um, projections uh, through organisations like the IPCC has been that as the average global surface temperature increases, then there will be a greater likelihood and a greater frequency of dry lightning strikes which is exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing a number of dry lightning strikes that, you know, we've never seen before. One thunderstorm can easily generate, you know, more than a thousand dry lightning strikes. Now, only one or two of those have to hit a bushland area and there's a pretty good chance that a, a fire is going to start. There's other causes as well. Um, you know, people who discard a cigarette carelessly, people who might have a controlled fire that gets out of, gets out of control, it could be a spark from, uh, you know, a grinding machine or something like that. We've also got arsonists, but the arson problem is relatively small compared to all the other causes of these fires. 
the major cause of these fires has been identified as dry lightning. And so the next question I want to ask you both as a former fire chief and as a student of climate change of many years, there have been the reported instances of major fires, uh, forest fires have been have been much greater in the last few years, whether it's the, the Amazon fires or the wildfires in California that seem to occur every year. And now this in Australia. I know that um, it's each each individual case has its own uh, causes. You can't the, the causes are not the same at a local level but is there are there larger indicators is there a larger picture to tie up here yeah i think so and i keep on coming back to it is human induced climate change burning fossil fuels and clearing land right. um you know it's 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 contributing to far higher levels of um, atmospheric concentration concentrations of co2 than that have been seen before back at the time of the beginning of the industrial revolution the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere was around about 280 parts per million. I mean, they're incredibly small, but they're incredibly effective at trapping heat. Um, now we're up around, I think I read a report today that said we're probably going to be around 415, 417 parts per million. doesn't sound a lot, but the safe level is considered to be 350 parts per million. So we're a long way above the safe level. And the concentration of um, CO2 in the atmosphere is, is increasing every year. I think they're saying now that this year or the last, maybe this year or maybe the last year, I can't remember now, will be the greatest increase in concentration, you know, in, in, in decades. So something, we're still putting out way too much CO2, releasing way too much CO2. It's going into the atmosphere, it traps heat, and that heat is being radiated back to Earth. And that's raising the average global surface temperature. Now, the average has increased by about one degree, but average is high extremes. Now, some areas, yeah, the, the, the increase has been three to five degrees. During our recent, uh, the most catastrophic part of our recent bushfires to date, we had average temperatures that were 14, 15 degrees above normal. And with fires like these, what are the knock-on effects on climate change it can have? I mean, changes in weather patterns. Uh, well, that's an interesting area of, of study. What they have found, um, just with the fires that we've had to date, and bear in mind, we're not outside our fire season yet. We haven't finished our fire season. It runs through until yeah. March. Um, that the amount of CO2 released as a result of these fires is equivalent to two-thirds of Australia's annual emissions of carbon dioxide. So it's a massive amount. That's, uh, that's going into the atmosphere as a result of these fires. Now, people will say, okay, well, the trees will grow back and they'll absorb the CO2. That might be the case, but the scientists are saying that could take, you know, easily more than 100 years. So it's a very significant effect in terms of adding additional carbon dioxide to, you know, an, an atmosphere that's already overloaded with carbon dioxide. The worry, of course, is that fires like these can be re repeated again in the next few years, that it could, going forward, be uh, quite a normal phenomenon. Is that something that you see as a real possibility? Absolutely. And that science, again, go back to the science. The science has been telling us this for 30 years, that right. this is a trajectory that we're on. And if we continue along what they call, particularly the United Nations IPCC, call the business as usual, trajectory, then we're heading for temperature increases above average over pre-industrial times of, you know, it depends who you talk to. Some say three, three and a half degrees, some say four, others say five. Now, at five degrees above the pre-industrial average, humans have never lived in those kind types of conditions before. 
Now, the last time it was five degrees below the pre-industrial average, places like New York were under five kilometres of ice. So you're looking at five degrees above. It's that kind of extreme we're talking about. I just want to briefly talk about the reporting on this issue in Australia. Because I know that in your media there, there's been a sharp dichotomy between people who see this as very visceral evidence of climate change finally coming to bear and those who uh, try and downplay that. So just give us an idea about that. What's the reporting on this issue been like? Yeah, look, uh, the majority of the media um, have been reporting the facts. Yeah. Uh, they've been very good. And I've you know spoken to lots and lots of journalists and they're all very supportive, they're understanding, they understand the science, they accept the science, they can see where it's all heading. We do have another arm of the media. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't know if I can mention that that company or <laughs> not, um, but there's one arm of the media which is putting out a lot of false information, a lot of right. confusing information, uh, doing making a lot of uh, false claims and false allegations about the cause of the fire. They're undermining the climate change science and it creates a lot of confusion now a lot of people who have lost their homes um, some of these people were people that had been following that particular um, news outlet and they were really confused because they were saying things like well you know we've been reading this paper and listening to that tv program listening to this this radio journalist and they've all been telling us everything's fine and now this is happening And they think, well, you know, what's really going on? Now, you know, a lot of people in Australia are confused. I think less and less people are confused now than they might have been a year or so ago. But there's a very clear campaign being waged to, uh, you know, to confuse people and and to undermine what is, you know, incredibly well-established and overwhelming science. And what are the major lessons to take away here from the last few months in Australia? for um, for other fire-prone countries around the world, or, you know, just generally for the rest of the world in, in general? What can we learn from how the fires broke out and what's being now done to contain them? Well, look, this, these fires in Australia, we're used to fires. I mean, fires are part of our, 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 our history, our cultural culture, our, our geography. It's just the way it is. But, I mean, these fires have to be a wake-up call to the rest of the world. These fires are absolutely catastrophic. They're, they're on a scale we've never seen before, an intensity we've never seen before. Um, and we've been watching, or I've certainly been watching fires in other parts of the world. You mentioned the Amazon rainforest, certainly watching the fires in the US and California. They're experiencing exactly the same types of conditions we are. I was even monitoring fires in the Arctic Circle. Circle is experiencing catastrophic fires <laughs> Um, you know, it's it's not just an Australian thing. I think Greece was experiencing catastrophic fires. Right. Um, yeah. You know, wherever you look in the world, we're seeing a big increase in the um, the frequency and the magnitude and the intensity of not just fires, but a whole lot of other natural disasters as well. Cyclones, storms, floods, heat waves, storm surge. Um, you know, it's just happening everywhere. And the common denominator behind it all is 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 climate change um these events have always happened i mean we can't say they haven't but the the frequency and the the magnitude and the serious seriousness of these events is getting worse and worse and that's exactly consistent with what the science has been telling us so of course this all links back to um and this is this is something that i meant to ask earlier 
But there's a big discussion now about fossil fuels and coal in Australia and how Australia is is reliant on coal and that causes larger patterns of climate change that have uh, that could uh, be linked to these fires. Um, one of the India links in this case is the fact that um, there's this huge coal mine in Queensland um, that's owned by the Adani Group and that there's a huge controversy about that. Um, I thought we could talk about that a little bit before we end. It's been a hugely controversial issue in this country. Okay. Um, the Adani mine, you know, the majority of people in Australia don't want this mine in Australia because they can see that all we're doing is contributing to more and more um, the release of CO2 into the atmosphere. Now, the Adani mine, I think the business case behind the Adani mine is that they want to be able to mine um, coal in Australia and then ship that coal to to India and use that coal in India to to burn, uh, to, to generate, um, you know, electricity through coal-fired, coal-fired power stations. Um, I can't see that as being a good thing for India. <laughs> you know, pumping more and more and more CO2 into the atmosphere. I mean, I've had a look at the the projections for India and they're very similar to the projections for Australia and every other country. Climate change is going to have, a, is, if not already having, it's going to have a profound influence on, on India. Um, and you've got a much, much, much larger population than we have. So, you yeah. know, you've got a lot of people who are going to be directly and indirectly affected by climate change. And I think for most Australians, it just doesn't make sense to us to be mining more coal and sending it to, to another country. Yeah, it's been a very, very big issue in Australia. The coal mining industry in Australia is extremely powerful, very, very powerful. Um, yeah. And our current government is very sympathetic to the fossil fuel industry, and particularly the coal mining industry. And they've been doing everything they possibly can to get the, to get the Adani mine approved. And just before our last federal election, which I think was 2018, uh, almost at the last minute, you know, before it was too late to do anything because of the rules in place about decisions that are made in a lead up to an election, uh, Mm -hmm. they approved it. And they approved it apparently um, without the support of the scientific agency that was given the job of assessing its impact on climate change and a whole lot of other issues as well. So it's been an incredibly controversial project here. But every, I mean, the government has been absolutely determined to to make this make sure this mine goes ahead. And to me, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense from an Australian perspective. And I think it doesn't make sense from an Indian perspective either. I mean, we should all be transitioning towards renewable energy. And I know India is doing a massive amount of work in that area to develop renewable energy. And I just don't understand why India would want to be importing all this CO2 releasing coal from Australia. This will be the largest coal mine in Australia and it will be one of the largest in the world. And it's in, it's been, it's in an incredibly environmentally sensitive area and the projections for the amount of damage it will do over the long term, just extraordinary. I mean, not just the CO2 released into the atmosphere, but the warming of the oceans and the damage to the Great Barrier Reef. And we just find it staggering that this mine is going ahead.